0: Big (laughs) Now I'm going to have to have that check, Mr. Bond. Smosh is going to be very unhappy about that money. You mean you're going to torture me? Persuade you, Mr. Bond, persuade you. Don't worry about that chair with a hole in the middle. It's merely waiting to be reupholstered. By me? You have an inventive mind, Mr. Bond, but my methods are much more subtle. They have to be. What are you going to do? Physically, I'm not going to do anything. Oh, you're going to nothing me to death. (laughs) Torture of the mind. (laughs) The most exquisite torture is all in the mind. It's a beauty, Countess, Mr. Bond. You're supposed to pick the winner. (laughs) hey everybody i'm joel murphy and i'm andy mcintyre and this is silver linings playback the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver linings And we are wrapping up
1: Mockbuster Movie Month with uh, perhaps the most or least mockbustery of all because this is a a drafting opportunity to a James Bond movie that they made by doing a James Bond movie.
0: Yeah, it's both not quite what these other ones are, but also in some ways it is really the best. I think the, yeah, just... So, I think we can do a quick version of the story, but essentially, what happened is someone bought the rights to the Ian Fleming novel Casino Royale before that meant anything and owned them. And then someone else, MGM, came along and made a bunch of James Bond movies starring Sean Connery. And then the producers that realized, wait a second, James Bond. That's that thing we own the rights to this one book of. And so they essentially had the rights to make a James Bond movie and were drafting on the success of the existing James Bond franchise, but also doing it kind of like with the H.G. Wells War of the World. They're completely within their right to do what they did because they did, in fact, own the rights to this particular Ian Fleming book. And adapted it perfectly. (laughs) Well, that's the weird thing. So they actually did try to get Sean Connery to play James Bond, which would have been the ultimate in Mockbusters, if you can get the person to just completely cause chaos and confusion. Uh, But rightfully so, Sean Connery wanted too much money. And so then they decided to make it a parody. I'm not sure why.
1: Right. And they there were several James Bond slash 007s in this movie, but uh, one of them, David Niven, was actually Ian Fleming's
0: personal dream casting for the role of James Bond. And I think if you watch this, you can see why. I think if he played it exactly like he did in this movie, we would not be talking about it now because (laughs) there would be no (laughs) James Bond franchise.
1: (laughs) That might that could be very well true. Um. But yeah, this uh, so yeah, this is Casino Royale, uh, not the uh, 2005 Daniel Craig one. I think it was 2005, something like that. Sounds right. Yeah, or, uh, mid mid aughts uh, James Bond revival, Casino Royale. I uh, know this is the 1967 68 because uh, like IMDb says 67, but the version I watched claims 68. So who knows? Um, version. Directed by a whole bunch of people and starring David Niven and Peter Sellers and Orson Welles and actual Bond girl Ursula Andress.
0: Right. And a ton of cameos from like Peter O'Toole shows up in this. There's a lot of of recognizable faces that all collected a paycheck to be here. Uh, Yes. Was it John Houston? Right is uh, yep, yep. Uh, and he
1: directed one of the scenes.
0: I think he directed the scenes that he's in. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Because that's what I had read is that he someone else was supposed to play his part, and then I think something happened with that person, so he just played the part while directing. I think. But yeah, five different directors. Uh, yeah, and, and he got to direct. This is just a fun.
1: Uh, and he got to direct his daughter Angelica Houston. Uh, because she was a hand stand-in for
0: one of the models in a scene. Which was like her first introduction to Hollywood, which is cool. Right. Uh, but also, this is going to sound like I'm making a joke, but this is actually true. Those five directors like weren't communicating with each other. There was no, like, as you can tell if you've watched this movie and the chaos that unfolds on screen, there wasn't a lot of communication between any people that were doing the separate stuff. And there's all kinds of things. There's a lot of stories of the actors sitting around in hotel rooms waiting to be called, like being paid, but also not being used because they were rewriting the script or they were figuring things out or whatever. Uh, It was a nightmare production. And the the funny thing is they didn't want to pay Sean Connery, but then they all later said it would have been cheaper to pay him because this movie went way over budget, uh, just blew through money because... People really believed the James Bond name was enough. And this movie did make money. But it did. It did turn a, a handsome profit. But it was a mess of a production. And I think that shows on screen.
1: <sighs> yeah, this,
0: this movie is a whole big pile of nonsense. With some, and I'm sure we'll get to it when we get to the silver linings, with some genuinely entertaining and enjoyable moments. But oh yeah for sure but definitely <laughs> i mean they're just you have to take them as moments don't try to connect them to any greater whole uh don't think about anything that's happening too much but if you can enjoy a scene just in isolation there are some good stuff to be found
1: this movie is about as narratively connected as like monty python's the meaning of life
0: yeah Yep.
1: And it's it's just, a, it's really just a bunch of discrete comedy sketches with some of the same actors playing the same parts.
0: Right, and again, there's this very flimsy logic that I really couldn't track where there is a James Bond, but then these other people are also calling themselves, They they are established as other characters with different names, but then they're going to assume the role of James Bond, which feels very much like it was done just again to film various segments with different actors in the lead role and it doesn't really make any sense why it's happening right because essentially
1: david niven is aging spy james bond and then he's replaced well, there's like a big audition scene where they put a few different people as james bond and then eventually evelyn trumbull uh played by peter sellers becomes james bond uh there's also woody allen as jimmy bond uh, Ursula Andress plays someone with this agent 007. Uh, the daughter of James Bond and Mata Hari is a character. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's, it might not be a silver line. He's like Mata Hari, excellent dancer, terrible spy. <laughs> Mata Bond, terrible dancer, might be a great spy.
0: Yeah. No, that is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean this this movie's a hot mess, and also. I don't know why we're just in this opening part, because I will not get through this episode without making sure to mention it. Uh, Peter Sellers, if you've ever Googled him, seems like he was kind of a monster in general, but particularly on this set, seemed like a nightmare to yeah. deal with, uh, where uh, for one, like he he got into a th- like he had apparently recommended Orson Welles. Uh, To play uh, the part of Lashif who's like one of the few things that I recognized in this movie as a thing from the original novel slash uh, the Daniel Craig version. Uh, That's the Mad Mm -hmm. Mickelson character is who he's playing. (laughs) Uh, And does some of the things that you would expect to see uh, if you were at all familiar with this, like play cards and torture him, but in a very right. weird context. But uh
1: because in the Casino Royale book, uh, they do play Baccarat, not Texas
0: Hold'em. Right. Yeah. The Texas Hold'em is definitely the trendy updating that they did in the 2000s, right. which I think is smart because I don't think oh, it was definitely
1: because one Baccarat is not an interesting game. It's explained in great detail in the Ian Fleming novel. And I don't care.
0: Well, and it's it's a funny thing, too, where I think wisely the movie has them play Baccarat, and I just, like, contextually was like, oh, well, it seems like he won, but they're just showing cards and not really telling you what's happening, and it's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to accept that James Bond won this, because who cares? Yeah. But I do want to mention this, that, uh so apparently they started out friendly enough, Uh like I said, Peter Sellers wanted Orson Welles to play the part, but... uh Princess Margaret, sister of Queen Elizabeth II, came to the set to visit, and Peter Sellers made a big deal about going up to Princess Margaret and be like, really was super name dropping, super wanted everyone in the crew to be like, watch, yeah, Princess Margaret, I know Princess like, oh, I know Princess Margaret. And went up and said hello to her, and then she kind of brushed him off. And she had known Orson Welles previously and was way more excited to see Orson Welles, which in Peter Sellers' mind, embarrassed him in front of the crew. And he uh, never really let that go. And then it got to the point the two guys had so much uh, tension with one another that they did not film their scenes together. Even though the scenes are the two of them together, they filmed them separately where Orson Welles filmed his coverage first. And then Peter Sellers came in later and filmed his half of the conversation. And from some of the stuff I was reading, at times... Peter Sellers was rewriting his lines and saying different things that didn't really match what had already been recorded by Orson Welles, so they really had to try to... It was a big pastiche job. Yeah, so... Which, I will say, knowing that and watching it, it, it is more cohesive than I would have expected based on what I had read. Yeah, if I didn't know that, I wouldn't have known it. Yeah, they actually do a really good job editing together, but that's just... Uh, The Orson Welles stuff. Peter Sellers ended up getting fired from this job. He punched a director who he was friends with in the face while filming this because they got into arguments over his behavior. Uh, He also... uh, I'm trying to find it, but he did a completely horrible thing where he fired a blank at... Oh, into one of the uh, women's faces.
1: Yeah, like as and a, like at point blank range to the point that it like drew blood and burned
0: her face. Yes. Uh which as like I as what he would have I guess viewed as a prank but which is a horrible thing that now I think we would recognize as you know, completely Abuse. Ex- yeah, it's just abusing a woman that you're doing a scene with. Uh yeah, I'm trying to find the details but I now have lost that spot. But yeah, that that's another thing that he did on set. Uh, he seems like he was a nightmare to work with. Yep. So just want to not get through this without... Uh, without
1: addressing that he was just a dick.
0: Yep. From pretty much start to finish. So uh, yeah. we can, I think, move on from that. But yeah, so... Uh, it, it, that was definitely happening and just... Everything else seemed like a mess. Um, yeah, it, it it the movie is super chaotic, and
1: you can that much you can tell that there's just not a lot of cohesion. But oddly enough, one of the most chaotic aspects of the script, um, or of the whole filming, being the Orson Welles and Peter Sellers nonsense. That's the least discernible in the insanity of this movie.
0: Well, and and that's the funny thing is like, to very for different reasons and to different degrees, they both I think had reputations as being difficult to work with, but they both also on screen you would never tell. They they were able to deliver professional, you know, performances. So I think yeah, they're both, you know, on screen, yeah, everything seems like it's going well even though it clearly was not yeah um
1: yeah like this everything about this movie is weird it's it's very weird (laughs) yeah it's it's literally a bunch of essentially comedy sketches most of which aren't very funny right uh and i would even argue that like not that because this movie came out in the 60s There's stuff from the 60s that still holds up as funny today. So it's not like, oh, this must have just been funny for the time. Like, no, it's just, like, not funny.
0: There, I I think people, if they haven't seen it, if this helps, there's a great episode, a classic episode of The Simpsons, where they make a Radioactive Man movie, and there is a sequence where they say that they should get the original Radioactive Man, and then they cut back to... That what is a parody of the nineteen sixty six Batman television show, but as presented, it is a completely ridiculous fight scene that then devolves into a completely ridiculous dance scene and and then it cuts back to the executives like shuddering, but essentially. That flashback is this movie like that is about the logic that that is going on or it's just like literally the end of this movie is just chaos where people are fighting and dancing and whatever. There's a monkey at one point. Yeah.
1: Woody Allen is hiccuping nuclear explosions because, yeah, he's
0: swallowed them. (laughs) Look, I mean, there were things that did make me laugh throughout this movie. (laughs) Uh, but it is a very strange movie indeed. And it's yeah, there's a handful of things that are recognizable from the book, but mostly it's just a loose collection of I mean, it starts with tropes. Let's see if we get uh, how well can we do. So it starts with M. Well, they, co- they go to get James Bond, but essentially M dies. And then there's a lot of time spent at his Scottish funeral. And there's a lot of hijinks around yes. that. And then do we go to the James Bond school?
1: Well, yeah, because, well, I think we I, maybe you're saving for the silver lining, but just the bizarre scene with James Bond and the Scotsman and the giant stone balls.
0: Oh, that's definitely a silver lining for me, but we can talk okay, about so it. We'll, if you want.
1: we'll put a pin in that. <laughs> yeah. no, okay, just make, <laughs> uh, I, I want to make sure we don't leave that out is what, oh, what I'm oh, getting Oh, no, at.
0: I would never dream of it. <laughs>
1: Uh, but yeah, then we get then. I think then it's the James Bond school, and where most of it is like seducing women. So like they already got the James Bond trope pretty accurately.
0: Although, can and, we mention to since you brought that up, and I don't want to forget it. One thing they did that I, I guess this is the parody. I would love to know the logic of it. Is they make the the Niven Bond completely. Like, like it's just that women are throwing themselves at him and he seems very uncomfortable by it. At one point, he's in like a a little sleepy nightgown with a a stocking cap on (laughs) and a woman is trying to seduce him. There's a lot of just him very uncomfortable with with women. And then the other James Bonds that are filling in are much more the classic mold. But I found that choice really fascinating that. Yeah. Original flavor James Bond seemed very uncomfortable with the seducing women part of the job.
1: Yeah, but I think it was also because, like, at a few points he realized that he was then seducing people that might be his daughter, and so
0: that's what made him so uncomfortable about it. There was... The scene with his daughter, but I mean, it's because in the Scottish scene there, it was happening too. But I think that was, maybe it was all contextual because it was that M's widow that was like throwing herself at him. So maybe every woman that happened to be throwing herself at him, he had a reason to be uncomfortable, but it just was consistent that every woman that threw themselves at him, he did not want. But yeah, his daughter who does say, I think something to the effect of, if you weren't my father, I would fancy you. Which is weird.
1: Yeah, that's no no two ways to slice that. That is just strange and bizarre. Okay, yeah. so so and the school. Alright, we're the school. And then there's just this like random non sequitur scene where the daughter of Matahari and James Bond like also goes to spy school, but then is like spying on the spy school, and there's the weird like Peter Laurie style. Henchman guy that has the external heart battery, and yeah, and then, yeah, then Peter they... Sellers becomes Bond, and then there's the scenes with Orson Welles where he makes a woman disappear and nobody
0: cares. I mean, look, they're there to see a baccarat tournament, and he is interjecting close-up magic. So <laughs> <laughs> these people are easily
1: entertained. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yes. That booze was stronger in the 1960s than swing in London. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's exactly what I'm um, saying. <laughs> yeah, and then... Woody Allen gets revealed to be the villain, Dr. Noah. A clever parody on Dr. No.
0: I mean, you... I could hear finger quotes in that, but the word clever. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, And then he takes the time-release pill... Then there's just basically the third act of Blazing Saddles, and then everybody dies, and then there's the end credits. Yep. And I, everyone goes to heaven except for Woody Allen goes to hell, and that's the best part of the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, that out of everything in the movie, that aged the best. So <laughs> Yeah, that's the one that they, they hit the nail on the head. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I I had that. I don't know if you had that, but when we, when the end of the movie happened, I think I just sat there and stared at the credits for a few minutes, because I just didn't know how to process.
1: Well, yeah. And the fact that the credit song is like a Weird Al-style parody of, like, the James Bond plot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's that, and I I was kind of disappointed that the opening song wasn't more of, like, what I think of as a James Bond song. Like, they had an opening sequence, but it it felt like they could have gone harder on the opening number.
1: Well, I think some of that is that, like, the idea the Bond song, like, really hit its stride with Goldfinger, and I don't think that had come out yet.
0: Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, um, where
1: Goldfinger really established the trend of, we're going to have a fucking banger at the top of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, now, I mean, if you look at, like, the last several Bond movies, like, you win an Oscar for writing a James Bond song, whether it's good or
0: not. Which, this, we should say, too, that this movie was nominated for the music and of course, nothing else, yes. but the music right. in this did get nominated. Uh, also, well, it just,
1: it's the fir- I think it's the first appearance of The Look of Love by Burt Bacharach, yes. which is like,
0: yes, uh, classic. And yeah, and used well in this, too. Yeah. the uh, Dusty Springfield version, because that's a great song. Yes. By the way, just in case anyone is wondering, it was Jacqueline Bessette who. Uh, mm. No, uh, that's right. Yeah. Who, who was shot in the face. Who complete utter monster uh, Peter Sellers fired at in a, again, finger quotes. Prank. Prank. Okay uh yeah yeah so uh, that's that's the movie i don't know anything else we want to zero in on
1: um i mean i think like yeah this is what this is movie is a weird curio because it's a wonderful time capsule of the 60s i feel like but at the same time like it's just like we talk a lot about this podcast about how they show the movies that are great to have on in the background while you're like folding laundry or making dinner or whatever. I watched this movie pretty intently and had no clue what was happening most of the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think I, at various points I was leaning in as if I was going to like, if clarity would come, if only I got even closer to the screen. Right, Like I was like
1: squinting. I was, yeah, yeah no,
0: it, I very, tr- it's like, very hard to try. Yeah. Like, I very much yeah. wanted to know what was happening and tried to follow it. And it, 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 I don't think it's possible. I don't think anyone could actually follow this completely and fully understand everything that is being presented. Yeah. This, this, it's
1: just wild and none of it makes sense. And, Nope. It's just weird.
0: But I can pivot if you want, because I, I feel like there's a, a quite a bit of, of things.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and pivot and talk about the silver linings of this movie.
0: Oh, well, we already kind of mentioned it, but I think really do zero in. The music in this is fantastic. It's awesome. It's This is... Yeah, the music
1: is... It's Burke Bacharach writing most of the score. He is an icon, a legend.
0: And it's... You can see why you can hear why. Yeah. And I mean, you got the Tijuana brass playing on this. Yeah. Yeah, You got no, the music uh, again, like you said, the look of love is is fantastic. Like it's it's got that very swinging 1960s sound to the music. And I I think the music does a lot of heavy lifting to keep the momentum going, especially when you have no idea what's happening that it's at least it feels breezy i mean this movie is two hours too we didn't really talk about that it's way too long yeah and you could too long you could cut any part of it is the thing just pick something and just cut it out because it wouldn't affect the story in any way but uh but yeah get it to 90 minutes i think we would have all been better off for it but that being said i think the music gives it a momentum that keeps it feeling like a 60s swinging party even as <laughs> it's, it's the rails are there are no rails there were never rails uh but yeah like
1: this movie it like like it, it almost makes austin powers
0: not a parody <laughs> yeah which also uh, credit to molly for pointing this out that Essentially, I think Austin Powers lifted uh, an entire... that The scene with The Look of Love uh, just redid that, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, just... I think Shot for Shot remade that scene pretty much. Like, the way that that is presented. Might have even used the same song. Uh, but- they did. The Look of Love... It's, I think it's a re-recorded
1: version, but it's not the Dusty Springfield uh, one, but...
0: But, yeah, essentially, yeah, that that was just uh, done, like, again, in an Austin Powers movie, because, again, like, yeah, it really plays to that.
1: Yeah, it's, um,
0: yeah, this movie's wild. Uh, Let's talk about the Scottish scene. We gotta talk about the Scottish scene. (laughs) So, again, as we said, M dies, and it's his funeral. And yes. uh, can you set it up? Because I'm honestly struggling to remember why it happened. But they're at so a, history, a new role. Yeah. At some point, James Bond gets challenged
1: to a game with a bunch of Scotsmen, and the game is apparently playing catch with incredibly heavy stone balls, which I think is a real like, think, thing. Think like the Atlas stones from like World's Strongest Man competition. Yeah. And basically the entire scene consists of these huge, burly, ginger Scotsmen. In kilts, uh, trying, some of them shirtless. In kilts, yeah. Trying to lift the stones while David Niven, who is pretty old at this point and pretty frail, is just like waiting ready to catch them and they just keep falling. And then eventually one does throw him and he catches it no problem.
0: Well, it's also and, a, a very creative. Like one guy falls through a wall. I think one guy falls through the floor. Like it, there's oh, a it's lot excellent of it. physical comedy. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, of hijinks in. I think one guy does the classic. He just falls straight backwards. But yeah, these all these very muscular, burly men are trying to lift these heavy stones, and then he's just waiting, as you said. And then when they finally throw it to him, yeah, he has no reaction to the weight.
1: <laughs> right, because he's James M. F. and Bond, and then he karate chops it in half that sounds right. I know that they then, somehow
0: split in half, I think, you know,
1: yeah. And then there's a bunch of
0: scantily-clad
1: women run, running around, and...
0: There's a... <laughs> if it's not clear, there's a Benny Hill vibe to a lot. And oh, big-time Benny Hill
1: vibe. Yeah, and there's and, a, it, This movie could have just as easily been scored by Yakety sacks
0: Which I felt like sometimes Baccarat was doing, like, as close as he could, was leaning into that. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of really beautiful women and a lot of Scotsmen, and I think they all mob him or something. And then they, they there's a... In the scene that we played in the beginning with Orson Welles, in the Tortured Scotsman's comeback, that's when Peter O'Toole shows up playing the bagpipes as himself. Yeah,
1: And many of the bagpipes also double as machine guns. So let's not forget that. How could we? <laughs> um, Yeah. Then it cuts to... I think the next part
0: is the James Bond school. Yes, which... Uh, I mean, if we're just doing silver linings, I I do want to talk about his, his daughter uh, in that sequence. Because... Yeah, that was one of my
1: favorite parts of the movie. Because I think it made the most sense, even though it was also maybe the weirdest.
0: Yeah. So, he, he goes to see her. And first of all, there is... Which also, I'll I'll use this as a broader thing, too, as we're doing silver linings, to say with five directors and with all the chaos around them there's some really great cinematography in this mm-hmm. movie and it has that rich 60s technicolor look to it that you don't really get anymore and all of that is very apparent in this scene because we get a dance scene and the the reds of the background like just the the red is that I like I missed that you know and I was even thinking like The closest that you get to it now is The Last Jedi, the throne room scene or something like that. But it's just that, like, very rich red. And it's this super choreographed dance routine that she's doing, which is great. Like, would be, you know, completely unironically at home in a, I'll call it proper (laughs) James Bond movie. Except she's a terrible dancer. Well, right. The joke is that she is bad. But the sequence itself, the way that it looks... And the way that it's presented uh would absolutely be at home. Oh, it would fit for sure, yeah. Yeah. And and so all of that's done really well, obviously with the comedic twist. Uh, but yeah, then we meet her and and who like I should have in front of me, but who is the do you know who the actor is who is playing? Off the top of my head, I don't. She isn't super famous. But I thought she was great. Like she's super She was really good. It's uh, she's one of, easily one of the highlights of the movie. Uh Joanna uh Ptett? I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she's fantastic. She wears an absolutely ludicrous costume uh for most of <laughs> their scenes. Which cracked me up, too, because they have her like in a trench coat at one point, but with, with just that costume under it. But uh she, she was really great and really charming. And the stuff with her and James Bond, as weird as it was, was good. And the dance scene was legit good. I also, I think it was her right. We didn't talk about... I enjoyed the comedy of the the auction scene, which I think involved her as well. Yeah. Because I thought that was some of the best comedy in the movie is they they put a lot of energy into... There's all these different governments, you know, the, like these different countries that are all in an auction house. They're trying to bid on stuff that Le Chief is uh, putting up for auction. But there's just all this discussion of various countries saying like, when we bid... We will stand, and then another country just defiantly in response, going, "Fine, when we bid, we're going to stand, and then when we're bidding, we'll sit down." And it spends the time like establishing this. The the ultimately, like the British government is like, "Well, we don't know what we're going to do." And so everybody has this like very specific choreography of if they're standing or sitting and what that means. And then when they start doing the bidding, they really pay that off of the quick cuts of someone bidding and then someone responding with a bid and all of the bids are ridiculous. And like, I, I don't know. It worked for me. Just the tempo. That that was solid. And so, yeah, that was a good scene. Um, Look, I am completely biased. Uh, And also I pointed this out. This has secretly been an Orson Welles month. I caught on to you early when you started with war of the worlds And then uh, you did, we did, uh, it was War of the Worlds and then uh, Transmorphers. And of course, Transformers, uh, the animated 80s movie was Orson Welles' final (laughs) credited performance. This has secretly been an Orson Welles' month. So, of course, we ended with a mockbuster with Orson Welles in it. But I love that man. I love his... Uh, He is great. He's great. And he... He is playing the fuck out of a Bond villain in a very dumb movie, but, man, he's selling it. Like, he is completely and utterly selling this character. Because that's the thing, is, like,
1: people that don't know Orson Welles think that he's the wunderkind that made Citizen Kane, and then he immediately devolved into obese self-parody. Like, that's... That is the narrative, yes. That's the narrative, but...
0: What a talented actor. He really was. And he did like, oh, and again, he did a, movies because he was in debt and he needed to raise money. But he did like over 200 films. And the reason that he did is because he was good in them. <laughs> Obviously, he did a lot of crap. And, um, you know, boy, how good can you be in something? But like, there's a lot of stories. One that I really enjoyed. Uh, I read Mel Brooks uh, autobiography recently, and he talks about. History of the World part one that Orson Welles was hired as the narrator in that. And, of course, talks about how he wanted to be paid in cash because, again, he had all these financial problems. But they had basically budgeted, I think, five days for him to record the narration for History of the World. And he finished it by lunchtime the first day perfectly and then basically was looking at Mel Brooks and being like, do you need me to come back? And I was like, no, <laughs> no, you're good. So he finished five days worth of a recording schedule perfectly in one day because he would show up prepared for everything. I think that's the right. part that gets missed is he was a professional. He was used to he had this radio background. He was used to tight deadlines and having to prepare for the material and having to be good in one take and having to be good in one take because you were live a lot of the time. So he yeah, he, there's not a lot of wasted footage of Orson and well, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you you tell him to play a Bond villain, even if the movie's ridiculous, even with what he's saying is ridiculous, he's going to commit to it. And I mean, he's again, he's playing a character that is the character Mads Mikkelsen played in the remake and doing a lot of the same stuff. I mean, they they both have and out of everything in the movie, because most of the movie is unrecognizable if you've seen the the modern one. But the two scenes that I recognized as things that happened in that movie, which is the card playing scene and the torture scene. And it did kind of make me wish I could have seen a version where Orson Wells got to do this stuff from the book, you know, where it, where you actually made the book, which
1: like the, uh, Daniel Craig one. I mean, it's, Different because like obviously it's uh Holdem, not Baccarat and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But it, it hews closer to the book than most James Bond movies hew to the source material they share names with.
0: Right. Yeah, and and so yeah, I would have loved to have seen Orson Wells sincerely play a Bond villain. I'd I'd argue that even in this movie, he's still playing a great Bond villain and and making stuff work uh that probably shouldn't work. <laughs> In all honesty. Yeah,
1: because it's like, because he's literally a heavily indebted uh, gambler that also does
0: magic. That's also a mentalist. And it's just doing it at the table. Like, he's stopping the game to do magic, which I also think that came from Orson Welles, because Orson Welles loved doing magic. (laughs) So... I would imagine in a chaotic script where nobody knew what they were doing. He probably just was like, I mean, I can do magic if you want.
1: Yeah, it's no or- Orson Welles, like. I would say is in the running for biggest silver linings relative to the source material for any movie we've done in this podcast.
0: Yeah, no, he's the best. And I. it's honestly surprising that he hasn't shown up before.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think most of it's just because, chronologically, we haven't done a lot of movies from his heyday.
0: Right. I think that if, we, if he had made it to the 90s, we'd be talking about him all the time, I think. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, but no, he was I mean, great. We've got to do Transformers the movie at some point. We, look, I'm pitching this on the show, but we should 100% do a month where we do Transformers the movie, we do the G.I. Joe movie. We need to do an 80s animated movie month.
1: Yeah, 80s toy commercial movie month.
0: <laughs> but we have to do, I will we'll only watch the version of the G.I. Joe movie that is split into five parts and narrated by Sergeant Slaughter for uh Is Saturday, there another version? Saturday morning cartoon. I think there, you can just watch it as a whole, but I never saw I it that so way. Too. I only ever watched it as like <laughs> on Saturday mornings with Sergeant Slaughter recapping the plot, which is the, I think everyone would agree the the preferred cinematic way.
1: No, that's the definitive cut for sure.
0: No, we definitely need to do uh, 80s. <laughs> we could probably do a Turtles movie in there. Well, no, they were. Were there Turtles movies they in there? The ni- What's that? They, uh, were they 90s? Movies, no. They were 90s. Yeah. They never did an animated movie, they waited to live action. Because
1: they're. I and mean, we could do, do Rainbow Bright. There's a Rainbow Bright. There's got to be a Care Bears movie. We'll, be, we'll, we'll have plenty to do. There's got to be a Care Bears movie. Yeah, so we got we got it. So okay. stay tuned. Who knows when that's going to happen? Maybe instead of holiday movies, we'll do toy commercials for the
0: for the <laughs> December. The reason for the season.
1: Yeah. Um, or maybe that'll be November setting the table for the holidays because it's all about buying toys and then. Oh, yeah, yeah. it will be our
0: Black Friday uh, theme <laughs> <laughs> where um, we just completely blow past Thanksgiving to get to the commercialization of December. Yes. Yeah. As you should. I kind of love that, actually. I think that's exactly what we should do. That's that's
1: happening. Get ready. So, we, you know what? You know, if you need to wait four months to let it happen, we're going to have some good episodes in there. We got Nicolas Cage Month. We got horror movies. It's going to be great. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, this movie is wild. And Orson Welles made it so much more
0: watchable. Yeah, I do. I like... I don't know if there's anyone else you want to give a shout out to. I mean, I, I love John Houston. I think he's good. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's and everything. great. Yeah. Uh, Ursula Andress, I thought, did a good job. Like I Playing an actual character from the Casino
1: Royale, playing Vesper Lind, that was played by Eva Green in the uh, recent one.
0: Which now, it's just now hitting me. Does any James Bond drink anything? <laughs> like a Vespa, a, a martini. Any, is there any like... There's no scene of him ordering a drink, is there? No, there isn't. Yeah, that's funny to think about. But yeah, she Vespa, who, of course, like gets the drink named after her in the right. Casino Royale, which is a real drink. But yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Well, I think some of that is that, like, since James Bond had only had a couple movies at this point, so its tropes
0: weren't as locked in. Yeah, I, that is an interesting point of what would this movie have looked like? I mean, I guess the answer is Spy Hard, which was made <laughs> with the Weird Al song. Or, or Octopussy. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it is a fair question to wonder if, they, if it had been made in the 70s instead of the 60s. And like, it was a little clearer. And James Bond itself had dipped more into parody.
1: <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like, there were a lot of like, spy tv shows like um get smart and but there's like the ipcrest files and there was the man from uncle and there were a lot of like the spy genre was booming but there wasn't like james bond wasn't its own subgenre yet in spy cinema the right. way it is absolutely now
0: yeah so it's just <laughs> i don't think we're saying it came too early but i you know <laughs> i think no it it shouldn't have existed. Well, let me ask probably. you honestly: Do you think there was any chance if the the set was less chaotic, if there weren't five directors, like could you see a version of this movie working? Because I I it's hard to say, but I, I'm curious if you think that it could have worked. So I think
1: the caliber of the Orson Wells and Peter Sellers sequences. And the utter chaos of the the final climax.
0: No, (laughs) no. Yeah, just yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, I'm even trying to entertain like if Peter Sellers had just been Bond the whole time or I don't know if you gave or just David Niven the whole time. David Niven, because Peter Sellers is a monster and uh, was rightfully fired from this. But uh Uh, yeah, if David Niven had just done the scenes with Orson Welles, and probably would've shown up face-to-face and spoken to him. And they would've played off each other and stuff. And would've not Um, cared about the feelings of the British monarchy uh, visiting the set.
1: Right. Um... Yeah, i Still, though, like... the, The connective tissue in this movie is so thin. Like, if it was just, uh... Mata Hari movie, I think that would have been good.
0: Right, that's what I'm trying, I think that was what I was trying to get at is if, I don't know, if the card playing scene with Orson Welles happens earlier and you establish, like you do the auction, you do the card playing scene, and you actually try to build to something with him. Also, it's just now hitting me because of how, because you recapped the fact that Woody, uh, Woody Allen is ultimately the villain. What happens to Orson Welles? Does he just go away? Do do they resolve
1: that? He uh, there. You remember that title card that said he flew back to his own planet and then the spaceship exploded? That was it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I missed that. But yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It must have been when you were leaning out for a second.
0: Yeah, that's probably it. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) that's the thing with this movie is it takes you that long to go like, wait a second. Wait a minute. It's What's happening? Meanwhile, you just hear a car engine rev up and peel out of the parking lot. <laughs> you just see Orson Welles
1: just slowly lumbering in the background away. <laughs>
0: uh, look, can I give a separate, um, just silver lining to Orson Welles in that white tuxedo in this scene? Oh, race? he's wearing the hell out of that white tuxedo. I mean, look, I look, I. I know that the accepted wisdom and Citizen Kane is is truly a masterpiece and one of the greatest American films ever made. But like, I know that that's like the accepted thing. And then in the like as you said, like he began. But man, for my money, 60s Orson Welles, 70s Orson Welles, that was where it was at. Like when he was wearing a cape and a top hat. And just, like, if you watch F for Fake, that is the sexiest, most fully realized Orson Welles, and I will stand by that assessment. He, Amen to that. He's yeah, because usually, because usually as a rule, they say that large men shouldn't wear white, but
1: Orson Welles proves that wrong.
0: Yeah, no, he. You should, if you can, wear the fuck out of it. I think
1: because that that is what he is doing with that suit. He is wearing the fuck out of that suit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Look, I. I think we did it.
1: I think we did it, too. Um, This movie is wild. Uh, I am happy to put Mockbusters to bed. This may have been
0: one of our most difficult months. I mean, we had to know going in. What did we expect that the Mockbusters (laughs) were going to be great? Like, we knew what we were signing up for. Yeah, that's true. But I'd say, look, you know, when the chips are down, when, you know, we're down by seven points with 30 seconds left on the clock, you and I always deliver and always find those silver linings, and I don't know why I'm saying all of that now. Yeah, I don't know why you're making a bunch of sports metaphors. That's weird. Yeah, it's not like we've ever done a sports month on this podcast.
1: <sighs> Listen, we only plan months, four months out, so we didn't talk about sports <laughs> four months ago, so I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, no, stay tuned for August. We got some fun surprises for you, and of course uh, Toy Month in November.
0: <laughs> Stay tuned to, for November, but we got to get through August and September and October 1st. Yeah. <laughs> so listen all the way through. Please, please, we really need you to listen to everything. Tell your friends. Please.
1: Silver Linings Playback is a production of HobotrashCan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey guys, it's Sean and Carter from Potato Salad Marmalade. Aid. 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 Potato Salad Marmalade, another podcast here on the Peak Sloth Network. Check it out.